I met Sam Jones on a dockside night in a rundown Viking bar. A kid of maybe 15 years at that purely nowhere star. He had no ship, he had no skills, no name or family. And he looked at me like a thirsty soul at a boundless salty sea. For space is wide and good friends are too few. Hello, and welcome to another episode, a very special episode, of Lost Transmissions, a Battlefleet Gothic podcast set in the Horus Heresy. I'm here with our um, retired Master Admiral here uh, to give a good lecture, Austin. Look, just because uh, we... I haven't rolled dice in like eight months doesn't mean I'm retired. Eight months may as well be seven years in warp time, so... Could be or anything. yesterday. Or yesterday. Quarantine time is both fake and very real. True enough. Yes. Uh, so we got a listener question from James and he wants to know along with uh, his friend Andrew we were requested to do a sort of uh, back to basics episode a, a where to get started episode for those of you who are interested in playing Battlefleet Gothic or Battlefleet Heresy but haven't played easily since 2010 or maybe even before that so this episode's for or you not at all or and, not at all. Uh, maybe you've never played, and your we, friends also haven't played since 2010, <laughs> or maybe before that, and so have no idea how to teach you. Yeah. Uh, and when Jesse told us, hey, you know, we got this question, guy wants to you know, know the basics of Battlefleet Gothic, our first response was, hasn't he been listening to our podcast? We've absolutely <laughs> talked about the basics of Battlefleet Gothic. Turns out, no. We, were hit, we hit on a bunch of stuff. Uh, but we didn't actually give a kind of a, an overview before we started diving into the legions. So we're taking a break from the legions today, and we're going to talk about the basics. And should we hit a point uh, that we already covered extensively in an earlier episode, uh, we'll just briefly touch on it, give you the episode, and you can dive right in uh, after you listen to Indeed. this one. Indeed. So uh, our first question came from James, and it is... What would you recommend getting as a good starting point for Battlefleet Heresy? Ignoring Legion selection, what's a good starting point? And we assume that this is the uh, universal question of, what kind of fleet should I build? And so, in our Red Book, we have a thousand point fleets for every Legion. Um, but we are going to use one of them, uh, minus one ship, as a kind of template for this episode to kind of explain um, the mechanics and use them as a uh, as an illustration for what we're talking about. And generally, when it comes to building a Battlefleet Gothic list, as we've said before, there are no bad ships in Battlefleet Gothic. Just about everything is viable in some way or another. And um, that's even more true for Battlefleet Heresy, because there are some ships... Uh, like Imperial ships especially, will do like, hey, this is a ship that has nothing but bat weapons batteries at various strengths and ranges. And here's another ship that has nothing but weapons batteries at slightly different strengths and ranges. Many yeah. of those ships didn't actually make the cut for Battlefleet Heresy, so you don't have to worry about which all-gun ship is better. There's yep. only one or two instead of four or five. It's fine. It's true. Um, but the general consensus when it comes to building a 
Battlefleet Heresy list or a Battlefleet Gothic list is that you don't want to load up entirely on one thing. Sure, weapons batteries comes in come in high volume, but they don't go through armor quite as effectively as lances. And while lances go through armor pretty easily, they don't come in the same number of shots as you do with weapons batteries. And then, you know, if you load up on escorts, you're going to have a fast fleet, but it's going to be paper thin. Mm-hmm. And if you load up on big heavy cruisers or battleships somehow, then you're going to be heavily outnumbered and easily outmaneuvered. Yep. And if you have nothing but ordnance, you will end up fighting a Mechanicum fleet with a billion fleet turrets and nothing will ever get through. Yeah. So uh, mixing things up is the is the key to having a to having fun, really, mm-hmm. with a Battlefleet Gothic fleet when you when you start out. So to that end, uh, when it comes to your vessels, you want at least one ship that's heavy on the weapons batteries, one ship that's heavy on lances, one ship that has carrier capacity of some variety. It doesn't have to be a lot, but you at least want it to be able to launch a wave of fighters every turn. And then you want uh, a smattering of escorts yeah. uh, because they are fast, they're maneuverable, and they can, um, they can be pretty good at plugging in gaps. Mm-hmm. So for this fleet that we're going to use as the template for this episode is a gothic cruiser a lunar cruiser a devastation cruiser and about two firestorm escorts and three sword escorts it comes out to what'd you do the math on 750 uh, 750 points on the nose uh, which is a perfectly good lunar, uh, practice size uh, and it's what a lot of small games will actually be played at anyway uh, especially mm-hmm. if you like raids it's sort of the you know happy medium of raid point sizes yeah and for reference the uh the gothic cruiser has is the ship is the quote-unquote workhorse no wait that's the lunar sorry uh the gothic is the lance heavy cruiser it has four lances on each side your lunar has uh weapons batteries and lances it's a pretty good uh workhorse ship especially when paired with that gothic the Devastation is going to be your carrier in this case. Uh, it has a couple of lances, and it has uh, up to four squadrons that it can launch. And then your Firestorms and your Escorts, or your Firestorms and your Swords, have a mixture of weapons, batteries, and lances between them. Yeah. And, and then your uh, Gothic and Lunar also fire torpedoes. Yeah. And uh, this fleet actually is slightly lance-heavy. Like, it's not, you know, perfectly... A ship has guns and lances, and you can kind of match up as you go. It it does skew slightly lance heavy, but that's okay. You can you can be a little bit. The point is, you need to have something to deal with sort of the other problem, right? Uh, so, for example, if you're playing a guy who's got a bunch of the Space Marine ships in his fleet, which are six up armor all around, having a billion weapons batteries isn't going to be super helpful because they need sixes to do damage. Lances only need fours. Meanwhile, if you're, there is a billion escorts in the other guy's fleet, having a bunch of lances, eh? Because you just can't get the weight of fire out to swat down all the little mosquitoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, conversely, if he's got a battleship and you've got you know a bunch of lances in your fleet, you're never going to be able to chew through its shields enough to actually do consistent damage to the hull. Uh, but we like this fleet. We like it a lot. It's a fun mix. Uh, it 
for reference, it skews very heavily towards the, the Imperial side in Battlefleet Gothic. Uh, the Devastation is a Chaos Cruiser. Everything else is from the original Imperial fleet. Uh, but it's fun, because the Devastation, being a little faster than Imperial Navy ships, clocks in at 25 centimeters movement to the 20 of all Imperial cruisers. So it's a little bit faster. It's got Its lances are very long range, so it can kind of operate on its own and be fine. The Gothic and Lunar, being Imperial ships, you want to kind of squadron your Imperial cruisers and have them work in pairs to target enemy ships. So they work together as sort of a second element. Uh, and then the Swords and Firestorms are probably going to be in one squadron. Uh, and that's a great mix, because Swords have nothing but weapons batteries. They have three weapons batteries each. Uh, the Firestorms have two weapons batteries and a lance apiece. So that's, nine, uh, that's 13 weapons battery and two lances from this escort squadron. Uh, that hurts, and will hurt pretty much anything it happens to jump on. Uh, of course, the trick with escorts is keeping them alive. Yeah, is timing <laughs> when to jump on something. Uh, for more information on just the basic, you know, classes of ships and what they generally do and are good at, uh, that's actually episode zero, where we spend the whole mm -hmm. episode talking about ship classes uh, and uh, talking about which we like, which we don't like, and the answer is all of them are good. People have preferences. Yeah. It's like the difference between somebody that likes a gunline army or a shooting army in 40k, 30k. You can make it work no matter what you do. Yeah. And um, what episode do we talk about guns, since we've been referencing batteries and lances here a couple times? Yeah, so that's going to be episode two. We'll talk about all the various weapons uh, and how they work down to the specifics, both in-universe and in-game. Uh, episode two. Excellent. So that's what we're going to work with today. Yeah. Um, and we're going to use a scenario to kind of walk through the way a game of Battlefleet Gothic should be played. Uh, it's going to be the scenario Cruiser Clash. It is the first scenario uh, that's listed in the basic blue book. And it is on page, uh, what is that? I can't 68. see the digital copy. 68. 68 is Cruiser Clash. So we firmly believe that Battlefleet Gothic is out. Thank you, Lana, for clawing my leg. Uh, we firmly believe that Battlefleet Gothic is played best on campaign. Um, but it can be played just in simple one-off scenarios. For the purpose of this episode, we are going to be uh, referencing everything as if it was in the context of a campaign, because that kind of gives you a better idea of the the wider context of what's happening in the scenario. Yeah, and, you know, especially if you're learning the game, you don't want to play your first game as the first game of the campaign, because, you know, Every game, no matter how well prepared you are to play it, uh, if it's your first time playing the game, you will make dumb mistakes or straight up forget rules. And that's never any fun if you're trying to play a persistent campaign and be like, oh my god, we totally forgot that like ordinance moves in both players' turns. That <laughs> wildly changes things. <laughs> yep. So Cruiser Clash is a great way to start off. Uh, so we've got our fleet. It's We're, we're going to say it'll be three you know, distinct moving parts, right? There's the Devastation, 
for the purposes of this, we're going to do what's called squadroning your Gothic and Lunar together, and then the escorts will be one squadron. So escorts always come in squadrons. Uh, between two and six is the standard for Battlefleet Heresy. Uh, and they can be a mix of any sorts of escorts, any type of escorts, whatever they're doing, you make it happen. Uh, and then for capital ships, you can field them individually, which is what we're going to do with the Devastation, but you can squadron them together. Uh, squadroning them together gives some advantages. The big one is when you go on orders, you only make one test for the squadron, and if they pass, both of them pass. That's fantastic. Uh, it also helps when you're shooting at things because you can combine weapons batteries together because uh, what happens just briefly is when you shoot at something and shields go down, it creates blast markers. Blast markers make it... If you're shooting through blast markers, it's harder to hit things. So if you had you know, your gothic fire and then your lunar fire, the lunar's weapons batteries would have a harder time hitting whatever it is it's shooting at than if they both shot together. Uh, but again, all all of that we explain in episode two, so we're not gonna we're not gonna get too deep into it here. Yeah. Uh, so there is a reference guide here on Cruiser Clash as well. Again, page sixty-eight that kind of gives you the pages in the uh, in the blue book to find the uh, the section that they're talking about. And it's kind of what we're going to use as we go through how a game is played. Uh, which means that before you do anything, well, actually, the battle zone is the first thing that comes up. Um, there are lots of terrain, which is otherwise referred to as celestial phenomena, that can be placed on a game, uh, on a board, to play. But we're not really going to go into that. We talk about that at length in our most recent episode, yep. uh, the Space Wolf seven. episode. Mm-hmm. So if you want to learn more about asteroid fields and gas clouds and stuff, there they are. Uh, but the first thing that happens uh, when you're playing a game is you roll for leadership. And like we explained in episode uh, Leadership and Orders 2, is that the one we said? Episode 3. Leadership episode 3. Episode 3 Leadership and Orders. Uh, that is, it kind of represents your ship's ability just in general to do stuff. Uh, it represents the captain's ability to command, and it represents everybody else's ability to effectively carry out that command. And it's rolled on a table. Uh, you roll it with a d6, and depending on whether or not you have uh, regular squishy mortals, space marines, uh, mechanicum priests, naval veterans, uh, your leadership value will... Rather, the table that you roll the leadership value on will uh, will vary. Suffice to say, though, uh, generally the higher you roll on the die, the better your leadership value will be. And generally gets created anywhere between 6 and 9 are kind of the, the most well, common. 10 if you're Space Marines. 10 if you're Space Marines, but from 6 to 9 is the most common, uh, what's the word, spread yeah. of leadership and it's values. Just like... 30k or 40 well not 40k anymore but 30k leadership check roll 2d6 you're trying to get at or under the number to pass the check uh, there yep. are some things that can screw with that 
Uh, and which, again, we get into in detail in episode three, uh, as well as things that can help with your leadership, which is usually just other ships, enemy ships trying to do things, which sort of represents, you know, uh, I can see that energy signature more clearly, so it's easy to shoot at, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and if you're and playing if you a can... campaign, your leadership can get better, which is exciting. Yeah. And even though we're referencing a whole bunch of our older episodes here, uh, if you happen to have a digital copy or a hard copy of the Blue Book, uh, leadership is on page 10. And don't feel too – don't be intimidated to crack that book open while you're actually playing a game. It's a very thin book as far as rule books go, and the the information's pretty concise. Mm-hmm. They did a so, good job of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've been playing this game for – six or seven years now consistently <laughs> six or seven boy that's a long time and we still can't get through a game without opening the rule book so there it is speak for yourself peasant that's okay well <laughs> <laughs> all right fine be that way damn i mean not when i'm playing the game i still got to reference the charts for how to randomly generate terrain and whatnot but... you mean you haven't memorized the gunnery table yet well i don't open the book for that i got a reference sheet Oh, look at you, From fancy. the original starter set. Look at, look at that. <laughs> anyway. Moving on. Yeah. So once leadership is set up, uh, you take a look at your deployment um, diagram. It tends to be, I think it is different for every single scenario that you'll play. It is. But for Cruiser Clash, it's just set up on long ends of the board. One dude sets up on one side, one dude sets up on the other. Proceed to blow the shit out of each other. It's, uh... And I, I will say, we were just talking about how nice the book is for referencing. The deployment maps have definitely improved since Battlefleet Gothic uh, came out. Because, for example, all it shows you is there should be 60 centimeters between deployment zones. And the deployment zones are 90 centimeters long. And they're in the middle of the table. But you have to math out what that means for, like, how far in... How- are they from the board edge? And how deep is that actual deployment zone? It doesn't really tell you. Yeah, um, it seems that uh, the rulebook hmm. that was published with the starter set is slightly different than the rulebook that just got published and sold individually. Yeah. Because the diagrams are different <laughs> in those two copies. I yes, know this for... because Austin has the original and I have a, I don't know, second generation. Yes, uh, it comes in especially true. So if you want to know which version of the book you bought off of eBay, if you go to Scenario 10, which is Fleet Engagement, there are lovely pictures and arrows, and the basics of it is you have to pick your like fleet formation secretly. Your opponent picks a fleet formation secretly, and it's sort of a rock-paper-scissors game that determines what of the four different deployment setups you use. Now, in my book, these deployment zones are either white or dark gray. That's it. However, in the thing that shows you, you know, hey, this is the chart. You know, you picked a sphere. The other guy picked a a wedge. It's, you know, this scenario is what you play. And the attacker is in this zone and the defender is in this zone. It also references two different colors of gray. 
which aren't in my book. So yeah. if you open up fleet engagement and it makes no goddamn sense, congratulations! You have the priceless relic of a first edition Battlefleet Gothic rulebook. <laughs> <laughs> if it does make sense, congratulations! You don't have a priceless relic, but you can actually play the missions. Yeah, because uh, Stevens does handily take care of that. So, yeah, that's that's a little aside that doesn't have a whole lot of bearing here, but it's just back, a fun story. Yeah, it's a fun story. Uh, getting no. back to Cruiser Clash. So we've got yeah. our leadership. We deploy, and deployment goes uh, alternating ships, right? So in in this instance, you know, if you're deploying first, you would deploy your Devastation, and then your opponent would deploy a ship, and then maybe you deploy your Gothic and a Lunar, because they're a squadron, they're going to act as one for this game, uh, and then you drop your escorts down. So pretty simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some some scenarios have, you know, one person deploys their entire fleet and then one guy deploys their entire fleet. Some yeah. is someone puts down half, the other guy deploys fully, the other guy puts down the second half. Mm-hmm. It's all different. That's one of the cool things about Battlefleet Gothic is that all the scenarios are different. Yep. Um but once you're ready to actually get rolling, um the game breaks down into Three phases, well, four. Four phases. Um, yeah, which is the command phase. That's when everybody passes their orders, uh, attempts to disengage three. if they've you know gotten the the mess knocked out of them. Movement, shooting, ordnance. Oh, and the end phase. So I guess five. Yeah. Five phases. Yeah, we know how to play this game. Well, in Steven's defense, the turn sequence cheat sheet uh, only has four phases. Uh, and leaders uh, and orders are just the thing you do at the start of the turn. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it tends but, to like when I explain it, it's hey, at the start of your movement phase, before you move anything, you issue orders to everybody. Yep. Yeah. And you can find out more about orders in the relevant episode. Episode three. That is a. That is a whole. Uh, Whole rabbit hole to go down. And if there we are six of again, them, they're real good. They help you do a whole bunch of fancy stuff. Yeah, they basically help you fight better or move better in some way, shape, or form. Yep, and the big takeaway for, you know, orders is two things. One, uh, once you fail an order to issue an order to a ship, you can't try to issue any more orders. You can get re-rolls to try and, you know, try again if you fail. But if you fail, you can't issue them to anybody else, which means that when you're issuing orders, generally speaking, uh, you should start with either the highest leadership in your fleet, uh, which if you should be your carriers, uh, because even when you're randomly generating leadership, you have an admiral with a set leadership value, which gets assigned to a ship and then you use his leadership, right? So if your carrier winds up with leadership six, you put your admiral on it, it's leadership eight or nine, you go about your deck. Uh, or you do the ship that absolutely needs to pass an order to live. Uh, and that's one of the fun things about Battlefleet Gothic is kind of balancing that out. Because sometimes mm-hmm. you'll say, you know what? I've got these two ships that are leadership nine and ten, uh, and it'd be fun if they could do an order, but I don't really need to. 
but there's a ship here that's at leadership six, and it's got to do the thing to live. Is it worth it to try first with that one? Who knows? All depends. Yep. The Shadow knows, but he's not telling. Indeed not. So, uh, the first thing is fairly simple. It's movement. Uh, every ship has its set amount of movement. In the case of your Gothic and your Lunar, it's going to be 20 centimeters. In the case of your Devastation, it's going to be 25. Uh, I believe both Swords the Fire Sword storms, and the Firestorms, they both go 25? Yep. All right, perfect. See? So... Every ship, in addition to... Uh, so, if you've played Heresy, uh, then you're familiar with just... Everybody can kind of move wherever they want, whichever they, whichever way they want, as long as they keep it within a certain amount. Um, if you've played Titanicus, where you have a certain distance that you can move, and you have a certain number of maneuverings or turns that you can make then that's closer to what Battlefleet Gothic does. Uh, every ship, every capital ship, so cruisers, light cruisers, and battleships, uh, has to move a certain amount of space before it can make a single 45-degree turn. And in the case of these capital ships, that distance is 10 centimeters. Yep. Uh, Easy to remember because it's half of what the Imperial movement is. Yep, uh, battleships can also do one turn, uh, but they have to move at least 15 centimeters before they do it. And mm. most light cruisers uh, turn 90, 90 degrees instead of 45, which is very handy yep. for getting where you need to be. Yeah, that uh, those values differ from class to class, uh, or rather from type of ship to type of ship. Uh, as Games Workshop went and wrote more and more things, some exceptions to these rules cropped up. But the general thing to remember is 10 centimeters of movement, then you can turn 45 degrees. Uh, all ahead, not all ahead full. Come the new heading, changes that. Escorts are the ch are the um, the exceptions to this. They can turn 90 degrees whenever they want. At the start of their movement, at the end of their movement, in the middle of their movement, whatever Still they want. Still just wants a turn. But Still just wants a turn. Uh, but they are more agile and more maneuverable than a cruiser is. On the downside, if you look at them sternly, they'll explode. It's true. And there is another downside to uh, moving fast, which people, especially when you're first starting with Battlefleet Gothic or Battlefleet Heresy, it doesn't really click right away. Uh, and that is, there's nothing to slow you down in space. Mm -hmm. So regardless of everything else that's happening your ship has to go at least half of its movement. Uh, barring some special orders that can change that. Mm -hmm. So if you've got, say, a Nova-class frigate, which goes 35 centimeters, that's crazy fast. That's the fastest ship in the game. But it's still got to go a minimum of 17 and a half. So you can overshoot your target. Uh, and that's part of the... You know, really anything will do that, but it's easier with a Nova. But that's part of the yeah. tactics of Battlefleet Gothic is if you're just sailing directly at your opponent, you know, head on, then you'll come side sideways, and then you'll just sail past each other, and turning to kind of re-engage might take a couple of turns. Uh, so if you're trying to do good maneuvering, 
for the most part, you won't try and come straight at somebody. You'll try and kind of be sideways, sideways to them while they're head on to you. And that does good things for the gunnery table. And mm-hmm. is think of it like uh, think of it like bullfighting. If your opponent is the bull, uh, you don't want to stand directly in front of it, or you're going to get gored. You kind of want to be a little bit out on the on the sides in the wings. Huh. And you are more survivable that way, and you can do more damage that way. Yeah, in concept, Battlefleet Gothic steals from two things: uh, World War II carrier battles and Age of Sail, like Lord Nelson, ships of the line just duking back and forth. And of the two, it's definitely more ships of the line duking it back and forth, uh, which is great because that was classy. It's true. It's true. People died like men. Yep. And then were dunked in barrels of alcohol, mm. which were then drunk by the crew. We should, uh, yeah. Should, we should all, the, we we should all, all aspire so to such an ending. <laughs> just what happened to Austin? Well, he took a cutlass to the stomach, but we dumped him in a bottle in a barrel of brandy, and now we're going to drink that brandy. Uh, it's not bad brandy, I tell you what. Yeah, it would have been a shame to waste it. <laughs> Splits a little bit of corpse, it's fine. Ah. Yeah. So, so that's uh, kind of a rough and ready movement phase. Uh, yeah, there are, there some, are things some things that can, that can slow, you, slow down. you down. Wow. Yeah, great minds. It's wild. Go yep. for it. Uh, there are some things that can slow you down. If you go through blast markers which are, again, kind of the remains of shields. It's just debris and fire and, and all sorts of stuff. Radiation. Uh, radiation. If you go through a blast marker, it takes away five centimeters off of your uh, maximum movement. So you still have to adhere uh, to your restrictions as far as moving half of your distance or moving 10 centimeters before you turn. Keep that in mind when you're flying through blast markers. Uh, certain celestial phenomena can slow you down. Uh, gas clouds act like blast markers. Um, asteroid fields just beat you up if you fly through them, and warp mm-hmm. rifts might destroy you completely. Yep. And then there's the burn retros special order, which allows you to move uh, kind of... It, it's the hard break. You can only move maximum half of your distance uh, if you are on burn retros. So... That's kind of it for movement. Uh, After that comes the fun one, the shooting phase. Uh, And this is where it gets, this is where it starts to get tricky. This is where everything you did in the movement phase either makes your shooting phase or breaks it. Because one of the most important things to remember in the shooting phase for Battlefleet Gothic is that there is no precious pre-measuring. Nope, it's a gentleman's game, it's in centimeters, nothing is pre-measured. Yep. So we often say that uh, Battlefleet Gothic is one in the movement phase, uh, which is kind of counterintuitive when you're throwing around VW buses at each other out of giant cannons. Mm -hmm. You would think, oh, well, surely the game is won and lost in the shooting phase when you're blowing people up. Wrong. Because if you get get a little froggy and you zip on past your opponent and now you're out of arc, to fire well now what are you supposed to do now you got to spend another two turns coming around or you didn't move far enough and when it comes time to select your target and fire oops you're out of range mm-hmm. yep yeah. the uh the shooting phase goes like this 
you pick a you pick a ship that you want to shoot with. Say your or a squadron. Or a squadron. Say you want to fire your squadron, your Gothic and your lunar. Alright? And you want to shoot at your opponent's escort squadron. You're like, oh, I've got all this firepower. That escort squadron is small. They only take one hit each to kill. This will be great. I'm going to ruin those guys. Okay, cool. Declare your target. Well, now, now it's time to actually measure the range to see if you're in range to hit them. So you take out your trusty centimeter uh, measuring tape, and you measure, and oh no, your closest gun is 33 centimeters away from the target. Heartbreaking. And your weapons batteries and your lances are all 30 centimeter range. So that huge block of firepower just kind of goes off into the void and does nothing. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, pre-measuring is dumb. I don't want to do it. To which I answer, yes, with your opponent's permission. You can both not pre-measure. It's a dead game. It's a gentleman's game. You do what you want. That makes you happy. And there are some of you that are thinking to yourselves, well, that's dumb. These are friggin' spaceships with all sorts of crazy technology. Surely they can have, you know, range finders on them that would tell you if you're far enough out. To which I say, this is the Imperium of Man. Nothing works like that. Uh, But more importantly, everything has countermeasures on it, right? Like, they don't talk about it a whole lot um, in the 30K universe, 40K universe, because there's a lot of, you know... I do this thing because it works, not because I know how it works. Um, But it's hard, you know? Like, if you've got something on your ship that obscures radar, you know? Which, right now, for us in, you know, M3 is crazy advanced tech. In M30, it's 30,000 years old. I am morally certain that every ship in the fleet is at least as stealthy as an F-35, (laughs) <laughs> to our sensors, it's just that their sensors are also much better. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that will make it hard to tell exactly where things are in space, uh, and that is why it is all guess ranges. Yeah. Not to mention, again, the uh, Lord Nelson Age of Sail giant ships duking it out. Uh, have you ever tried hitting something that's beyond a visual range with a shotgun? <laughs> yeah, it's like... The, the distances, and I know we've said this like a dozen times already, but the basic 30 centimeter range is roughly the distance from the Earth to the moon. So, you know, you're trying to hit like the city of Richmond, which is a couple of miles long and, you know, a couple of miles wide, would be, you know, about the size of a Gloriana. You can't see it from the moon. You might be able to see a light, you know, if it if it's night and it, you know, Richmond is dark and all the lights turn on. And, uh, yeah, that, that pinprick over there, that's the city of Richmond. Uh, but then it's also moving 16,000 miles an hour because it's rotating and you're trying to hit it from a ship that's moving, you know, 80,000 mi- miles an hour but going in a slightly different direction. And math is hard and nobody really knows what any of the machines are doing. And it, it's difficult. So what you do is you fire a Volkswagen bug with a nuclear tip on it, uh, you know, <laughs> set, set the fuse to approximately where you think the uh, city of Richmond is going to be, you know, 
38 seconds from now when the Volkswagen bug should theoretically be nearby it. And you hope for the best. Yeah. And uh, it sometimes works. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it works. Sometimes it really doesn't. And then you um, waste a whole broadside and then cruisers come up on your thrusters and just take you apart. But, you know, time. that's what happens. Mm-hmm. It's, that's the way it is when you decide to go to war in space where physics matters a lot and also not at all. Yep. Physics are very important, but also there's demons in this universe, so <laughs> that's also a concern. Yeah. Uh, but again, we're not going to uh, go too deep into it because episode two is all about shooting. We walk you through the gunnery table. We walk you through closing and a beam and all of that. It's a great episode for all of this. Um, two, two basic thoughts for shooting uh, with weapons and lances, which are the most common weapons. Pretty much every ship is going to have weapons batteries. Most ships are, eh, not most, but a lot of ships have lances. Uh, the other two types of shooting in Battlefleet Heresy are bombardment cannons, which are just nastier versions of weapons batteries that you'll find on Space Marine specific ships. And then the Nova Cannon, which is Iron Warriors, Imperial Fists, Mechanicum. Uh, so, you know, Nova Cannon is its own beast. We talk about it in shooting uh, episode two. Don't worry about it if you're not playing Iron Warriors or Imperial Fists. And if you've got some strike cruisers or battle barges, just think weapons battery. And the thing is, weapons batteries are great at dropping shields because there's lots of them, right? And shields come back. That's an important thing. So most cruisers have two shields and escorts generally have one. Battleships will have, you know, four or five. Uh, And you'll shoot at ships and shields the first things that go down. And then the ship moves, you know, next turn like you do. And if it doesn't end its movement in a blast marker, the shields automatically come come back to full strength. Doesn't matter if it had zero shields left, all of them are back. You got to do it all over again. So weapons batteries, because they tend to be more numerous shot wise, you fire those first. Then lances, because they always hit on a four up, regardless of everything else that's going on. Those are the things you fire when the shields are down uh, to murder somebody. Uh, And for those of you that play Titanicus, shields in Battlefleet Heresy and Battlefleet Gothic aren't like Titan shields, right? In Titanicus, if you've only got one shield left and I shoot 30 things at you, any, like, and I hit you 15 times, one hit drops a shield, the other 14 hits are wasted. In Battlefleet Gothic, if something has one shield, you hit it three times, the shield goes down with the first hit, the other two shits, or, Jesus... Sorry. <laughs> the other two hits uh, will hit the hull and do nasty work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you hit the enemy ship and done nasty work, you get to roll a D6. And on a six, you do a critical hit, which, again, we talk about in episode two. Uh, but generally it's a well, not generally. It's always an extra good thing. Um, about half the time it'll drop like various weapons on the enemy ship. Uh, sometimes it'll do extra damage. You know, if you box cars, the critical hits table, it does D six extra damage. Uh, you can catch them on fire. You can pull a battle of Endor and, you know, blow the bridge off a ship. There's all sorts of fun things that'll happen. 
And then, should you actually kill the enemy ship, you get to catastrophic damage. Uh, which is what happens now that the ship isn't in a state to fight. Uh, for the most part, the answer is it just drifts through space or drifts through space on fire. But there's about Sometimes a it explodes. Yeah, there's about a one in three chance that it explodes. Sometimes really horrifically. So yeah. if you blow something up, don't be right next door. It's a bad yeah. time. Again, if you played Titanicus, then you have um, some some vague idea of what it's like when a gigantic centuries-old war machine dies. Yeah. Get, uh, sometimes it just falls image. over, but sometimes it explodes. Get that mental image in your head, and then realize that all the guns on a Warlord Titan are secondary armaments, at best, on any given Battlefleet Gothic warship. Mm-hmm. It's fun times. It's good times. Yep. Would you like a shout-out on our podcast? Maybe discounts on our Teespring store? Maybe you'd like to vote for upcoming Heresy Grad School topics? hang out in a private Discord server, or maybe even just getting a fun podcast sticker. If you're interested in any of that, consider becoming a patron. Patreon funds help for server costs and allows us to make cool content for you to enjoy. Patronage also helps us pay for projects such as our Nova Open Charitable Foundation Army, The Honored, an Ultramarine Zone Metallus Force that will be up for charity raffle coming this year. If you're interested in getting in on the action, consider becoming a patron today at patreon.com forward slash rr30k podcast. Thank you. This episode of Lost Transmissions was made possible in part by our generous patrons. Starting with our prayer to tier Alex Self, Nicholas Quanga, Jacob Dillon, Matthew Boyce, Josh Phillips, Mr. Baldwick, Garner.Tree of Woe, Joe from Music City Heresy, and Chris Mack. Our Centurion tier, Scott LeMay, Andrew N., Black Label Painting, Minis by Applesauce, Angry Boy, John Christensen, Mark Henry, and M. Hernandez. Our Sergeant tier, Aaron Maynard, Garrett Lowe, Travis Smith, Duncan, and Emily O'Hare. Thank you all very much. Uh, so, you've done your shooting phase. What's next, Stephen? The ordnance phase comes next, which is kind of like the shooting phase, except more annoying. <laughs> uh, this is where your torpedoes start going and doing nasty things. It is when your carriers uh, earn their points back, is during the ordnance phase. Ordnance comes in two flavors, generally. Uh, unguided ordnance, torpedoes, um, orbital mines, stuff like that. And then attack craft, which is fighters, bombers, and assault boats. And we go over ordnance pretty uh, pretty thoroughly in episode... One. Episode one. one. Yeah. Yep. Our first episode is ordnance. So again, we're not going to go into super detail. But anything with uh, torpedoes fires out of probably its front arc. I, I think there's only one ship in the entire Battlefleet Heresy compendium that has torpedoes on the port or starboard, Which and it's a Gloriana. A yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but most everything has torpedoes in its prow, which means 45-degree fire arc from the front, torpedoes go 30 centimeters, and then they either hit something, or they just kind of wait there for a little bit until the real time catches up and they move again. Uh, torpedoes hit ships directly. They go through shields is the important thing. Mm -hmm. uh, as soon as they shields. come into contact with a ship's base. Now, we should go back and note that during the shooting phase, whenever you're measuring from ship to ship, you measure from the stem of the uh, from the stem of the base to the stem. 
of the base because the model itself is just kind of a representation of what that ship looks like, but the ship itself only exists on the stem. Yes, like the the base is the couple hundred kilometers around the ship that if your nuclear Volkswagen goes off, the ship will have a bad time. Uh, And then the stem, you know, kind of the bright point in the stem is your three-mile-long capital ship. Mm -hmm. It's hard to wrap your head around the scale of things in space. (laughs) Yes, there's some nerds who have done way more math than us have written essays on it, but we'll leave it up to you to find them. Ordnance is the only thing that does not play by those rules. Ordnance, because again, those the base represents that, you know, couple thousand of kilometers wherever it is that something can adversely affect the a capital ship zone. or an escort. Yeah, uh, that is where ordnance actually uh, does its work. It doesn't necessarily have to touch the ship itself, although it does help. So, if ordnance, in this case torpedoes comes in contact with the base of a ship, not the stem, the two assets interact. And then you get to have uh, the wonderful, futile interaction that is defensive fire. Uh, Because ships have guns other than what's mounted on their port and starboard sides. They have, you know, banks of hundreds of Icarus LAS cannons and quad auto cannons or and, volcano cannons. Yeah, like bigger thing, you know, earth shakers that fire yeah. you know, flak rounds. Yeah, stuff that's meant to fire at things way smaller and way faster than enemy contemporaries. Uh, and most ships have two to three turrets. And so when ordnance comes to interacts with you, and torpedoes is the easiest thing that you're going to have to deal with, it gets way more complicated once you start looking at attack craft. Uh, but stick with us for now. Uh, so you've got six torpedoes coming at you. All six torpedoes come into contact with your ship. Now you have four turrets. Actually, you know, we'll say that me, it's fi- they're going to hit the devastation. Let me let me interrupt you real quick. So, um, in the main rulebook, you know, you've got your fancy blue book. It'll tell you that for every torpedo you launch, which is six for every cruiser. Um, you make a there's like a little torpedo chip, and you make a little wave, and it's you know six torpedoes long, and it goes. That's largely been replaced um, by one that's just sort of three of those chits wide, so roughly like a twenty centimeter, twenty centimeter by like ten centimeter token, if you will. Uh, and if any part of that hits your ship all of the torpedoes are considered to have, you know, attacked your vessel. Um, They changed it, I think, because if you launch from a battleship, you can have a wave of 12 torpedoes and hit another ship, but only like four of the individual torpedo markers would actually touch the ship. So the rest, and it's all a mess. Yeah, it's kind of a pain. Use the, you know, 20 by 10 centimeter token. If it touches, everything hits. It's much easier, much easier. And more accurate, I think. Like, you're not going to fire a torpedo salvo over, you know, half the distance between Earth to the moon wide and just kind (laughs) of let it wander. No, you're going to keep it kind of tight so that if you hit something with it, you're actually going to murder them. But sorry, you were talking of futile defensive fire. Yes. So uh, we're going to we're going to make the futile defensive fire slightly infinitesimally less futile 
because the ship that we're going to use for this illustration will be the Devastation, your carrier. Uh, most carriers have one turret more than their next closest contemporary. So most cruisers have two turrets. Carriers typically have three. Um, battleships often have between four and five. So carriers have anywhere between six and seven. Uh, they're just better at defending themselves against ordnance than everybody else's, which makes sense because they carry all the planes. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so six of those torpedoes coming in. The Devastation has three turrets. So you take 3d6, you take three dice, and you roll them. And for every four up that you get, one of those turrets hits a torpedo and blows it up. And then the other torpedoes come and slam into you. Now you will notice, you'll say, but wait a second, six torpedoes at minimum against two or three turrets, there's no way to shoot them all down. And you're right, there's not. (laughs) Exactly, dear listener. Life sucks sometimes. (laughs) Life sucks sometimes. Uh, All of your lasers don't destroy the 75, I don't know, meter long ICBMs that are just hurtling at you at a fraction of the speed of light. Sometimes life sucks. It's hard. Yep. So say you hit all three, or say you hit with all three turrets, all right? So you destroy three of six. So now three torpedoes are going to hit you. Those torpedoes roll against the target's armor the same way that weapons batteries do. And in most cases, that means that torpedoes are going to hit you on a five. So say three torpedoes roll three fives. Well, now you take three whole points of damage, just straight through your shields, three points of damage. Mm -hmm. Three chances to get critical hits. It's a bad time. Mm-hmm. So you say to yourself, okay, well, that was a best-case scenario, though. Like, only three whole points, I've got eight, that's not a big deal, I'll be okay. And you're right, three whole points out of eight isn't a big deal, but six whole points out of eight is. And, and sometimes it'd be like that. It it really, it really do. Uh, and here's the other fun thing about torpedoes. So say... You fire your turrets, and because Stephen has no faith in them, only one of them hits of the three. So five torpedoes roll, and three of them hit you. What happens to those last two torpedoes? The answer is, they just keep going. Yep. And if you've got another ship behind that devastation, you know, if your escort squadron was waltzing along behind and is in that 30-centimeter movement rate, for the torpedo, uh, guess what? They're going to get hit by torpedoes as well. And they get to fire their turrets to try and shoot them down. And if they don't, the torpedoes could hit them. Uh, mm-hmm. Or let's say your opponent, you know, has a ship on either side of your devastation and foolishly fired torpedoes and, you know, two completely miss. They could hit his own ship. It's I've done that. Before. It happens. I've seen it. Sometimes yep. you're not really paying attention because they're moving in both ordnance phases, you can think, oh, yeah, I can fire, and like you're just concentrated on killing that ship. And yeah, that first 30-centimeter move, you missed. But then you realize, well, that ship has to go a minimum distance, and there's blast markers, so it can only do that. Oh, they're going to have to hit those torpedoes. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. a sad time. But yeah. it gets worse, dear listeners. Because say, let's go back to our devastation that lost three whole points 
from its torpedo salvo. And now the enemy comes at you with attack craft. And it's a lovely wing, which is what we call a group of attack craft that get launched together in base to base. Yes. Of two Uh, fighters. A a brief note there is that uh, launch bays launch in squadrons. For points of strength, squadron is the word that the rulebook uses to refer to that. So when we say points of strength on launch bays, we mean how many individual markers of attack craft can that thing launch yes. squadron uh, point of strength um, squad unit of those are all interchangeable whereas wing wave group all kind of means a collection of individual tokens yes that are all in base to base it's important to keep your squadrons together especially when they're attacking ships so Let's say this wave has two fighters and two bombers. And we're not going to get into the details of how all of this interacts because we'll be here another 30 minutes. uh, And it's all in our ordinance episode. 30 minutes if we cut out half. You're right. That was an hour-long episode. Hour and a bit. (laughs) Um, But the important thing to realize is because that devastation shot at those torpedoes, it now can't shoot at the attack craft. Because just conceding, you know... You're talking about what's happening in real time and you're doing all of your moves. All of this is happening at once. So it's not your devastation got hit with a wave of torpedoes and then got hit with a wave of fighters and bombers. It's fighters and bombers attacked and torpedoes attacked all at the same time. And whoever's in charge of the anti-ordnance gunnery said, we need those torpedoes destroyed. Sometimes it's a good call. Sometimes it's not a good call. Uh, And you get to pick every phase, right? Uh, Because in the movement phase, when you're moving around, you might accidentally like run over uh, attack craft squadrons or torpedoes. So you get to pick as well uh, in that. But the good thing is, uh, let's say those fighters and bombers, you know, they come in, they do their thing. uh, And then another wave of torpedoes gets moved. Because when you're moving stuff in the ordnance phase, you don't have to move all your torpedoes and then all your attack craft. You can do it. Whatever, whatever way you want to do it. So that second wave of six torpedoes comes in. Then your devastation gets to shoot at them again. Right? So you can fire turrets as many times as you want, but only at either ordnance or, sorry, either torpedoes or attack craft. Correct. Fun times. Yeah, fun times unless you are on the receiving end. Yes. And then the other takeaway from the ordnance phase is once the person whose turn it is has moved all of its their ordnance, their opponent gets to move all of their ordnance as well. So even though things like bombers only go 20 centimeters a turn for an activation, they're really going twice a game turn. So they're all attack craft and ordnance is faster than any act, any normal you know ship. Mm-hmm. And it bears noting at that point. Uh, we talked about making a balance when it comes to building your fleet. Uh, some people really, really like carriers. Uh, they like their dictators, their emperors, their devastations. Yeah, they I want to fight the battle of Midway every time. Yeah, I personally love the sticks. But it is important to know, especially if you're starting out, uh, it's okay if you load up on batteries. It's okay if you load up on lances. Whatever you do, for the sake of your own sanity, do not load up on carriers. Uh, because 
once stuff starts, once you get into like turn three or four, and you've got a decent number of tokens out, even when you only have one or two carriers aside, uh, the ordnance phase essentially becomes a miniature game of Battlefleet Gothic, <laughs> and becomes exponentially slower the more you have on the board. That's true. And I'll put out a different reason to not load up on carriers. So Steven really poo-poos turrets. Uh, but the thing of it is, because of the way especially bombers interact with turrets, uh, and because if you're in base-to-base with another friendly ship in your squadron, or friendly ship, uh, you can share turrets, right? So you can give, you get plus one turret for every friendly ship in base contact with you, as their flak, you know, fires at stuff trying to attack you, you can essentially become immune to bombers. Uh, it's, it's true. It's hard to do. You got to kind of, you know, fiddle around with it. But if my opponent brings nothing but carriers, and I know this, I am going to bring a lot of those escorts that we talked about before. Because not only do they have turrets and come in packs so they can mass their turret fire against the target. Uh, but if your fancy wave of fighters and bombers attack the squadron of escorts, they only attack a single ship in that squadron. Mm-hmm. Which means that congratulations... Or any squadron, for that matter. Yeah, or any squadron. Yeah. Um, so congratulations, you've blown up one sword or cobra or whatever it is. And then I'm going to be in range of you. And the carriers, you know, until you get into the Glorianas, which are just ridiculous, uh, they can't defend themselves against peer competitors who don't care about their attack craft. Right? They're, they're, they just don't For have the, the firepower. attack craft, carriers don't really have a lot of lances or weapons batteries. Yeah. And it makes sense, right? All the space where you could have shoved extra weapons batteries and lances are taken up by aircraft. Spacecraft. Whatever. Uh, So there's a good reason to keep a nice balance uh, beyond just that, you know, oh god, I brought four carriers and now the ordnance phase is going to take a lot. Five ever. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, On the note of grouping up, you're not just sharing shields. Uh, You are, more importantly, uh, sharing your ordnance. So if we go back to your gothic and your lunar, which run around as a happy little BFF squadron, Uh, When they are in base-to-base, they can fire their turrets for each other, but they can also merge those torpedo salvos. So both the Gothic and the Lunar have a strength 6 torpedo salvo individually, but in base-to-base, you can combine that into a strength 12 torpedo salvo, which is way more dangerous for some reason, despite being mathematically identical to two waves of six because two waves of six aren't being launched at the same time right because it's all it's all about the math because once you hit everything's moving so fast that even though that base represents you know 200 kilometers from the ship and you know that's the range of your turret fire it takes torpedoes seconds to cross that gap so it's only seconds of turret fire to try and shoot them down so if you're Launching, you know, base to base, you know, coordinate your movements, hit the button at the same time. The waves are hitting in that same few seconds. Whereas, even if you're just a little bit separate, 
you know, it's going to be two or three seconds difference in launch time, and that's enough for the turrets to be able to kind of recycle and fire again. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of benefits to firing off as two waves, though. Um, or rather, there's one benefit that I can think of. Uh, oh, no, there's two. There's yeah, a couple. There's two. Never mind. Good. Yeah, there's at least two. Uh, the first one is that two waves of six are harder to defend against with ordnance of your own. So normally, fighters are generally your main anti-ordnance defense. But if you have a big blob of fighters, or maybe you don't launch a lot of fighters, it's a lot harder to justify sending, splitting that, that capacity up to go after two waves of six instead of jumping a bunch of them onto one wave of 12. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times, like for me, I'll only have, you know, one fighter squadron where they call it cap, right? Combat air patrol on a ship. And one squadron will pretty reliably remove a wave of torpedoes. So you fire in two waves That first wave of six, you know, erases the fighter marker probably. And then that next wave comes in and slams on. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a better way of, it's more effective as area denial when you do it that way, because instead of having that little, like Austin said, three torpedo wide chit, now you've got two, three torpedo wide chits and it's a, it's a wall of six torpedoes, mm -hmm. um, which makes it harder to avoid and makes it harder to disengage, which we'll talk about more in a little bit. Yep. And, uh, also for a third thing that I thought of while Stephen was talking, uh, those blast markers that we keep talking about, another fun thing they do is that if any ordnance moves through them, uh, on a one, they explode and are removed from play. Womp womp. Uh, and that doesn't matter how big your torpedo wave is, you roll that one, all of them are gone. So, nope. you know, if you're real Atomic antsy... a bitch. If you're real antsy, you can fire in two waves and have a, a better chance that at least some of your torpedoes will hit their intended target. Mm-hmm. And that goes for any celestial phenomenon as well. Uh, asteroid fields, gas clouds. Yeah, anywhere. some of them just automatically remove ordnance. But at the very least, you're going to have to roll that D6 to see. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, this has just been a very, very brief touch on ordnance. It is all in episode one. And then yep. once the ordnance phase is done, you move on to the end phase. Yay, which has a whole bunch of stuff going on. It's coming close to an end. We're only an hour in. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, so you resolve a bunch of actions and one of the things you do boarding actions, if you've actually managed to pull that off, that is a completely other topic. Yeah. We'll talk um, about that on episode world leaders. <laughs> yeah. We're, it's coming up soon, but not quite yet. And it's sort of an advanced thing. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Uh, there are teleport attacks, which go at this point. Uh, these are also sort of an advanced rule. We're also going to talk about them. Uh, more deeply in word bear or world eaters. But uh, the basics is if the enemy's shields are down and you're a capital ship, you can maybe make them roll on the critical hits table. Yeah. Just teleport fun. terminators onto their bridge. It's fine. Yeah, it's exciting. Uh, but the two big things that happen are damage control and blast markers. So damage control phase is when you're trying to fix all of those critical hits you took in the shooting and ordnance phase. And it's very, very simple. Uh, escorts don't do it because escorts are either dead or alive. They don't take critical damage. <laughs> they have a binary uh, existence. <laughs> right? Um, but capital ships, 
in the end phase, if you've taken critical hits, uh, you roll a d6 for every hull point you have left. Uh, and then for every six you get, you can try, you can fix one of the critical hits. Now, if you're in contact with blast markers, you have the number of those dice rounding up, which is unfortunate. And you can see, you know, as you start accumulating critical hits, you know, you've already taken damage. So the best you're going to be able to roll uh, for your eight point, eight hole point standard cruiser is seven dice. So, you know, that's reliably a six up. You know, you can do that. Yeah, but then you you're start not unlucky. taking four or five hole points and suddenly you've only got, you know, three or, you know, it's a, you can you can have these things persist Stack. for a long time. Yeah. Especially God the forbid fires. you have two fires. God, the fires. And, and three hole points horrible. left. <laughs> for more on fire, consult episode two. But for all, for now, all you need to know is Jesus it real bad. It's like Sun Tzu said. <laughs> fire never goes out of style. It's true. Um, so, That's you do your Bible damage control out. phase, and then probably the last thing you do, although it's not strictly the last thing you need to do, uh, is the player rolls a d6 and removes that many blast markers from the table. Uh, you can't remove blast markers that are touching a ship's base. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why we say Battlefleet Gothic really maxes out uh, at about 2,000 points. And if you go a lot over that, you start slowing down the game like just exponentially. Uh, the first reason is the ordinance phase, and the second reason is the blast marker removal rule was designed for 500 to 2,000 point games. And once you start playing, you know, 3,000, 4,000, I've played 5,000 aside, point aside games, there's just too many blast markers on the field, which means that, you know, your shooting isn't as good, you're going slower, it's harder to do things, and everything just kind of slows down. Um, but removing blast markers is very, very important, and it's, a, it's another kind of mini strategy session that goes into it, because, you know, do I remove the blast markers that are right in front of me so that in my turn I can move at my full speed? Or do I leave them there because I think that the enemy ship is going to be right in front of me and it'll be harder for him to hit me? Or like, hey, you know, do I take away the blast markers in front of me, in front of, you know, my carrier that's trying to reload ordnance that might have to fly through that? Or do I take it away from my gothic and my lunar so that their torpedoes will be more accurate, you know? There's a whole bunch of thought that goes into it. Uh, but the general rule of thumb is remove them from your cell. They're in your way. Leave them in front of the enemy so it slows him down when he drives through them. And uh, pray you roll a decent number each turn so the void just doesn't fill with nuclear fire. What he said... Yeah, that's pretty much it for the end phase, isn't it? Yeah, that's the end phase is pretty... Uh, Not a whole lot going on. Pretty cut and dry. There's one other thing, um, I guess, before you really get to like the end of, of what you're going to do when it comes to playing a Battlefleet Gothic turn, although it technically takes place at the beginning of your next turn. Uh, and it's very important, especially on campaign, 
because in Battlefleet Gothic campaigns, your ship roster is persistent. And even in individual one-off games, the point value of your ship is the literal number of victory points that it gives up. So like if a Styx cruiser with no fixins at 229 points explodes and dies, that's 229 victory points to the enemy. But there are ways of mitigating how much you end up giving up, even if a ship is very obviously out of the fight. And that's a disengagement. Um, as we've said, these, these fights take place out of visual range. You're kind of looking at sh uh, shield flares and engine signature and life support and all that. Disengaging is someone rips open the breaker box and turns everything off. Tries to make themselves as invisible as possible to enemy sensors and enemy ordnance and kind of stealthily drift away so that they stop getting shot at or chased by torpedoes or bombers or escorts. And it's how you keep ships alive for campaigns, and it's how you make sure that ships give up fewer victory points, even though they're definitely beaten. Uh, disengage is technically an order, so it's done on 2d6. You roll it just like you would any command check, but then there are modifiers to that. Um, it's easier to disengage if you're hanging out inside of blast markers and a gas cloud, uh, asteroid field, what have you. It's harder to disengage if there are enemies right on top of you. So... It's true. Uh, that does technically happen in the movement phase at the end of your move. But yeah. it's something that you kind of always assess in the end phase. Or in your opponent's yeah. end in phase. The end like, phase is when you're he's removing at it, you're blast like, markers and you're kind of there like, alright, Jesus, that was rough. Uh, yeah. Probably time to go home. Mm -hmm. um, whether or not... So if a ship successfully disengages, then it just, boop, it disappears. It's gone. Uh, you take it off the table, it plays no further part in the fight, it's done. Turns off its lights, it goes home. If it fails, then it's about to have a really, really, really bad time. Yeah. Because while it's attempting to disengage, it's not doing anything else. It's not reloading the guns, it's not charging the lances, it's not prepping bombers and fighters for another sortie. Everybody is doing everything they can to get out of that fight. And if they mess it up, well, they're not ready to fight anymore. Yep. There's nothing so quite as heartbreaking. To disengage and fails just kind of stays there. It can't shoot. It keeps moving. But that's about all it does. Yep. And undoubtedly, it just is in a real bad spot. Because obviously, if it was in a good spot, you would be disengaging it. Uh, yeah. So it's just sort of heartbreaking whenever you fail to disengage because... It, it probably means you should be ordering the crew to the savior pods because everything is about to blow up. Mm -hmm. The halls are on fire. The bridge is cracked. Like it's yeah, the, the third lieutenant is in charge and yeah. just can't get everybody to run. Yeah. It's, it's a bad time. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's a good basic overview of Battlefleet Gothic, Battlefleet Heresy. Yep. Um, can you think if you want to know more, you know, listen to our first uh, four episodes is where yeah, we they're, go they're about. into 
is uh, where we go into greater detail. One more time, episode zero, we talk about all the ship classes and the various ways they move about, the sort of guns you're likely to see on them, that sort of fun thing. Uh, episode one, we talk about ordnance in all of its variety and detail, as well as, I think, talk about some alternate ordnance rules, including Battlefleet Heresy's own H-33. Uh, mm-hmm. Episode two is all about the shooting, the big guns, the lances, bombardment cannon, Nova cannon, get into all those gritty details. Uh, episode three is leadership and orders. Although I should say, uh, I want to say episode five, our Emperor's Children episode, we also talk about leadership and orders a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then episode seven, uh, once you get done talking about the lovely and eternally best Vilka Fenrica, we talk a lot about all the various celestial phenomena and places where one might fight in space. Indeed. Yep. Including low orbit. No, we talk about that in a. We're not talking Iron about. Warriors. We're not talking about low orbit. We're done talking about low orbit. We're done. Yes, thankfully, uh, <laughs> thankfully, low orbit sucks. Uh, yeah. So that's what we got. We hope you enjoyed it. That was you know, illuminating. Uh, there is one thing I would like to touch on before we sign off on this one. Uh, and it kind of goes back to James's initial question of where we get started. Uh, Battlefleet Gothic has been out of production for ten years which means that you can't just go into your local games workshop and buy cruisers. True. Uh, eBay is probably the best place to look uh, when it comes to sourcing cruisers. You can generally expect to pay anywhere between, what, uh, $15 to $20 for a, a for a used plastic cruiser? I wouldn't say that bad. You can, you can get away from like 8 to 12 is probably the range that I would buy. Um, sometimes battleships you find you'll probably five. end up paying fifty for just because yeah. they're old and made or, of metal, or more depending on you know, the type of what battleship. type of battleship. Uh, yeah. The imperial ones tend to be more in the fifty range. The chaos ones can hit about seventy-five. Um, mm-hmm. Light cruisers, about twenty-five bucks, is what you'd expect to pay for just any of the light cruisers. Uh, and then escorts are pretty cheap. Um, Come here, you needy cat. Five bucks a piece is kind of the sweet spot. You can get squadrons for less, you know, 15 bucks for four ships or something like that. Um, and they vary a little bit. Like, Cobras are dirt cheap. Uh, Falchions mm-hmm. are sadly expensive because they were, you know, were one of the last ships GW put out. Uh, so not yep. a lot of them got made or bought. If you're looking to fill your fleet with some of the rarer, cooler ships... Uh, you might end up paying out for it. Yeah, and waiting a while. Like you can always go on and, and buy plastic cruisers or escorts. Like mm-hmm. anything in the blue book that's a cruiser or an escort, you can find that online. No big deal. Uh, the Space Marine ships tend to be a little bit pricier. Uh, the Strike cruisers are still about twenty-five. Uh, their escorts are a little pricier again because there were just fewer of them out there. Uh, the battle barge again, like seventy-five, maybe a hundred bucks for for a battle barge, but it is a solid hunk of metal. Uh, yeah. If you've ever h- held one of the old metal dreadnoughts in your hand, this is heavier than that. Yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> I mean, battleships are about a, are almost a foot in length, and they are solid metal all oh, the way through. Foot. But so you could rob big, a bank. You girls. could kill a man with a battleship. You could certainly kill a man with a battleship. 
Though we uh, don't recommend it. Yeah. There's not Do a lot not... of battleships out there, man. Come on. We don't need that yeah. locked up in an evidence locker. Yeah. Yeah. Chair. <laughs> Jesus. Um, uh, let's, uh, but yeah, so eBay, eBay is a great place to start out. You can find mm-hmm. some fun stuff. If you want to play a rogue trader fleet, uh, some of the drop zone commander stuff works real well for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some fun things in the resistance starter box, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you want the... sort of terrain, you can buy all of that. Asteroids are really easy to scratch build. Uh, X-Wing. Either... X-Wing is the best yep. source of like, if you just want, this looks like space terrain. Yep. If you don't if want you to want have to make it yourself is great. If you're trying to make it yourself, um, you can get some like volcanic rock, like the pumice is fantastic because it's already the right color and has holes in it and is pretty mm-hmm. light. Uh, or yeah. just, you know, styrofoam balls that you melt a little bit. Uh, yep. Dust clouds, spray paint some cotton balls. You know, it doesn't take a whole lot to make a dust cloud. Uh, yep. And then for all the stuff you need to play with the planetary assault scenarios, uh, we talk about that all in the Imperial Fist episode. Uh, which is episode five, I believe. Uh, whichever one is the Imperial Fist episode, we get into that and where to buy those. Yep. Some stuff you're just not going to find, like <laughs> a Ramilly Starfort, you'll probably never find anywhere. And if you do, you'll have to pay upwards of $100 for it. The, the bidding will start at 100 and and go you, up from you there. Best, you best real want it. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, we keep our fingers crossed. The rules, crossed. though, the rules you can get almost entirely free online. Yes, uh, and this just isn't... Just about everything is somewhere. This isn't piracy. I should point that out. Mm-hmm. Uh, GW, uh, in sort of the waning days of Battlefleet Gothic, put all of the stuff online for free. Uh, so no matter where you happen to find it, um, it's it'll legit. be somewhere. And we have most of it on... Our website, rr30k.com, if you click on the little Battlefleet Heresy tab, uh, it'll take you to the rules for Battlefleet Gothic and some other stuffs. Uh, for those of you who are absolutely brand new, uh, the basic blue book, rule book, uh, and the 2010 FAQ will get you going. Uh, and then naturally, our Battlefleet Heresy red book if you want to play in 30k. Yep. But I think that's just about everything. Yeah, that's, that's all I got. Um, next episode... Let's see, who we got? We got Night Lords next, which... I like the Night Lords. That was a fun Legion to write. Uh, so we can do Night Lords next, or we can continue to go off the rails for a little while. Maybe talk about Mechanicum, talk about Rogue Trader. Up yeah, to you, uh, you know. We'll, we'll say we're doing Night Lords, but if any of our listeners would like another topic... I mean, again, we were going to do Night Lords before we did this, and then somebody was like, hey, man, why don't you do a basic episode? We were like, you know what? Absolutely. Uh, yep. So if you if hit you're... us up and say, hey, why not a Mechanicus episode? Or tell us about those rogue traders or anything yeah. that crosses if you're, your mind. If you're on our Discord, uh, just tag Austin or I, and we'll see that message. We mm-hmm. see them. We read them. We reply. And if we don't, uh, you can tag message Jesse, us on Facebook. And if, and if we don't reply, tag Jesse, because he'll then tell us. He will then make us reply. Yes. Uh, he'll open the trap door to the dungeon that we're kept in, and he'll throw down, I don't know, a fish or something, or poke us with a stick. Be like, check the Discord! 
Yeah. And we'll say, what? And then he'll yeah. copy and paste it, and we'll be like, oh, yeah, I saw that, and then got distracted. Yeah. Anyway. It's hard when you're writing homebrew. It is. Um, but it's been fun. Hope you guys yep. learned something and enjoyed yep. yourselves. And we are... We're also free for questions. Like if, if you have other questions for this, you know, shoot us a message, same platforms, and we'll we'll get back to you. Yeah, we'll sh- we'll share our knowledge. But until then, constant listeners, good hunting. Our speed ebbed down and ebbed again as we turned for that Cape class sun. But Kate and the kid went on together on the trip they'd both begun. Oh, half-blind Kate and young Sam Jones made a hell of an engineer. So turn down a glass for such as they, and thank God we're sitting here. For space is wide and good friends are too few. Yes, space is wide and good friends are too few. Thanks for listening to another podcast from the Remembrancers Retreat. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving a rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. You can also find our swag store at teespring.com forward slash stores forward slash RR30K podcast. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at RR30K podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Remembrancers underscore retreat. You can also visit our website, RR30K.com for podcast updates and the Battlefleet Heresy Compendium. You can also leave us a voicemail for us to play on a future podcast at 1-929-437-3791. That's 1-929-HERESY-1. And you can also leave us an email at the Retreat at gmail.com. Thanks again.